0: Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast. This week, I'm joined by sommelier Chris Dillman. Most of you listening, if you're from Columbus or have lived in Columbus for any length of time, probably know the name from the refectory. He was there for almost 20 years. He was a sommelier there. Also worked at numerous places around town simultaneously. We getting into kind of the reasoning why behind that, his CV and his career and where he's worked. He also recently moved out to... Geneva, New York, and is now the sommelier at F.L.X Table, which is like a small fine dining tasty menu only restaurant. I think it seats like 12 to 16 people, something like that. Why he chose, you know, to go out there and take that opportunity and the story kind of behind that and his thinking and everything and just kind of get into his career, you know, as a sommelier, why he decided to leave the court of sommeliers after, you know, he sat for the masters for like 5, 6 times just kind of how influential he has been in the wine scene here in Columbus and Ohio. You know, you have Greg Stokes, who's a a good friend and, you know, when we had Greg on the podcast, he spoke real highly of Chris and just kind of his influence. And Greg's currently working towards his master certification too, as well. Kendi Warden, she was on the podcast. She's kind of more focused on the education side, uh, running the grape grind and everything. But she's focused on kind of like the W set and stuff like that instead of going for your advanced or your master certifications through, you know, this quarter of master sommeliers and everything. And so we kind of talk about, you know, the other avenues, too, that a wine professional would have coming up. Thatcher Baker Briggs is kind of more focused on the private consulting, where you have Jamie Ma, who's more focused on just kind of like the actual customer interaction and also his journalism career. So we get into kind of all that stuff. It's really interesting conversation. He also has the two best stories of the craziest things that you would see in a restaurant while you're working towards the end. I won't spoil those, but they're pretty amazing. (laughs) So it's going to be tough to top for future guests for coming up with the craziest thing that they've seen. They're both pretty awesome stories. So make sure to follow Chris on Instagram. It's at best underscore dressed underscore busser, B-U-S-S-E-E-R. You can also follow the restaurant that he's working at, FLX table. It's just at FLX table on Instagram too, as well. I highly encourage you to follow both those accounts. Also make sure to follow us on Instagram at spoon mob. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, check out the website, spoonmob.com review, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from, you know, make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast too on whatever platform. This is just another fun episode. You know, we haven't had a sommelier on in a few weeks, so it's always good to kind of vary it up, you know, a little bit with having restaurant owners and chefs and sommeliers and different professionals and stuff like that. So you can just get a different perspective of what they've gone through in the industry. And if it's something that you're interested in getting into yourself with the wine industry or curious about wine or want to know more about just kind of life as a sommelier, Chris kind of dives into all that and he's super honest too as well about just his issues with everything and stuff that he would have done different and stuff that he enjoyed doing and why he's doing what he's doing now and all that stuff. So without further delay, here is my conversation with sommelier Chris Dillman over at FLX table in Geneva, New York. Thanks again for making some time and coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. You know, Greg uh, Stokes and Kendi Warden, both people I've talked to have come up uh, in our conversations with them just because you were kind of a mentor, I think, to to both of them. And there's not a whole lot of Somalies in Ohio, even though you're no longer in Ohio anymore. But I definitely wanted to reach out and just get to know more about your story and everything since you were at the refectory for Many, many, many years. Before we get to all that, how did you first get started with wine going all the way back to the beginning? Was it just something that you fell into? Was it something that you got involved through restaurants? How did that kind of all first start?
1: Uh, yeah, a little column of A, a little column B as well. Started working in restaurants in high school and college to pay for school and then just sort of kind of fell back asswards into it. I'm trying to think when it really started. I had been managing restaurants and bartending for a while. And my roommate at the time, had got a job as a server assistant at the refectory, had a reputation, and I ended up taking a demotion to go there to start as a server assistant just to kind of get my foot in the door. That was 1998. That certainly helped a lot, you know, because there aren't a lot of server assistant bussers in the world that get to try, you know, 1970 Grams and uh, 90 Drew and Clotamouche after the shift. So that certainly got the ball rolling. I worked there for four years, worked up to server, and then just needed a break and... Went to work at a restaurant in German Village. It's still there called G. Michaels. Probably three months after that, they had acquired a space that used to be called K2U in the short north, and they were going to open the city's first wine bar. So they asked me to build a program there and run it. And uh, that's kind of the beginnings.
0: You went to, I think, Ohio State, right? And got like, a, I think it was a biology degree. What were your original career plans? How does that line up with wine? Or were you thinking going somewhere else and then just found this detour of the world of wine?
1: I think like a lot of people, you know, it was originally pre-med and then you get through your first two quarters of chemistry and you're like, yeah, that's that's not going to be a thing in my life. And at OSU they don't have an undergrad in pre-med, you have to pick something else. So biology is usually the the degree of choice. But I stuck with it. Within biology, you have to take all five of the major biosciences you have to take uh, molecular genetics and biochemistry, but the first one I took was entomology. And OSU actually has one of the best departments in the country for it. So that's what I ended up sticking with is my sort of emphasis. So technically, my degrees in biology, but entomology was really my focus. I don't think it has a direct correlation to what I do, but there's a mind frame that's kind of the same. Um, you know entomology is very, very detail oriented. It's taking large quantities of information and sort of collating them and being able to recognize them. Uh, so there's there's a common mind frame that appeals to both. if that makes sense. Um, but no direct no direct tie between the two, no.
0: When you start working at the refectory, did you always kind of work there and just picked up side gigs? Like I was trying to put all your places in like chronological order. There's a lot of stuff that overlaps and that happens with everybody. So I tried to do the best that I could, but were you kind of always at the refectory and then would just kind of pop over here and then come back? And
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I lost count some point. I think I've worked there seven times over the years. So worked there for four years, left, did the Burgundy Room thing, came back for a little while, left, um, worked at Rosendales for a while, tried distributor in there for a little bit, worked retail for a little bit. Some of them overlapped where I'd be doing both. Some were just come and go. But I guess the good thing about an old school established restaurant that doesn't change a whole lot is you can come back after four years and your information is probably still on the computer. You can clock in right away. And not a lot has changed. Uh, so, you know, not burning any bridges and uh, just keeping that door open and 23 years of, of working there.
0: So with the Burgundy Room, I think the first time I kind of learned about that, I think it might have been I was having a conversation with Josh Dalton. He might have mentioned it because I think they had somebody in the kitchen who was there uh, for a while, too. Is, how did that all kind of
1: come about working there? I was working at G. Michaels and they'd acquired the space and they knew what they wanted to do. And I had some, you know, coming from their factory, had some decent wine knowledge at that point. And it just seemed kind of the natural fit. Um, They originally hired me to, I guess, move me over there to be bartender and to run the wine program. Uh, But then very quickly made me the manager, too, um, which was not my choice. But, uh, you know, that is what it is. It's funny now. I don't know if you can find it anymore. But the dispatch used to have an interview with the owners beforehand. Saying, you know, laying out what they thought the Burgundy was going to be, and they saw it as this very casual sort of Tony cocktail lounge wine bar place where people would come in for a cognac after the after the show or after the theater, and it turned out to be absolutely anything but that. I don't know if you were ever there, but it, it was a, it was a busy wine bar restaurant from 4 p.m. to about 11 p.m. and then from 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. It was vodka, Red Bull, apple martinis, people throwing up in the sink. It was like an obnoxious bar where you had to have a bouncer and a door guy. Um, It was a very, very weird circumstance. Uh, I learned a lot. It shaved a couple months off my life, I think, in the long run. But it was a pretty good spot. A lot of great people worked there.
0: Yeah, the college crowd kind of seems like came in after the kitchen closed, just kind of filed
1: in. Yeah, college crowd and young professionals. Like We would get a lot of crazy, crazy people that worked for limited brands um, that would come in and just... They were young They had a lot of liquid cash, and uh, a lot of them didn't call this their home country. So I feel like they weren't that concerned with what necessarily happened because they weren't going to be here long term. I have seen, I saw some stuff working there I've never seen anywhere else in my life.
0: So before that, you said you're at G. Michael's. So is it true that the owner offered to pay for your sommelier exams once you passed the intro? I think you did the intro on your own, right?
1: I think they may have reimbursed me for the introductory exam because that was in 2003, but I didn't really do anything after that. I waited quite a while. So I didn't take the certified until 2007, which if I had actually, it was long enough ago that if I had not waited, I would have never had to take the certified. There were a number of us who were grandfathered in because that that tier of the exam didn't exist originally. So I took, I'm trying to think, but it was in 2007, I took the certified, I don't remember where I was working at the time. I don't think I was at the Burgundy Room.
0: Rosendales, possibly?
1: I think it might have been right on the verge of the two. Yeah, it's a little fuzzy now in the past, but yeah. Uh, Rosendales did, um, they did help cover my advanced exam. I do remember that. But certified, I don't call it, be honest.
0: Is that common for restaurants where if somebody's going through the sommelier exams to do that, or is that kind of rare?
1: It's fairly common from what I understand. Um, I believe the the, the restaurant has a, a decent ability to write that off as a, as a training expense. You know, I, I think... If restaurants wanted the quality of their service to be consistently better, they would help with that more often. But now, who knows? I mean, everybody's scraping by, so it's kind of tough to say. And that exam has become increasingly more expensive over the years, too. So it's a big burden.
0: Why did you want to do the intro?
1: Well, uh, he's no longer in Columbus, but there was a master sommelier who lived in Columbus for a very long time. And I knew him through the business. And it just seemed like, well, you know, this is an introduction, so let's try it and see how it goes.
0: And then once you did the intro, did you know kind of right away that you wanted to do the certified or were you just kind of satisfied with the intro and like, cool, that was awesome. I'm just going to continue doing what I'm doing.
1: No, because um, at that point, there was no certified. It just jumped from introductory to advanced. And that seemed like way too big of a jump. Burgundy room was a 70, 75 hour a week job. And putting in extra work for something like that was just not really an option. I think it, was, it wasn't until I kind of wound, wound down and left Burgundy Room that it seemed like an option again. And I think Rosendales uh, was very big on certifications and badges and awards and, and that sort of thing. I think they might have actually said, hey, if we foot the bill, would you be interested in trying the next one? I was like, mm, if you're paying for it, what do I have to lose?
0: Yeah. And I think around that time, you might have even been working two different places as like a sommelier. When you're doing two different sommelier positions, is that just so you can
1: acquire more knowledge or is it just trying to pay the bills? Yeah, It's pay the bills for sure. Nobody gets in this business or stays in this business to get rich. There's a lot of overlap in my resume because I'm just working two jobs to pay the bills.
0: Before you eventually sit for the master, you competed in, I think it was Top som competition, Top Sommelier, and wound up beating out like seven or eight other people from the Midwest, got to go to the the finals in Napa. Did you already know you were going to take the master and you were kind of using that as prep or was it just another thing to like experience or just instead of doing flashcards all the time, now you had
1: this other practice? Um, it's both because at that point, I think the first, I think the first song was 2011 and I took the master for the first time in 2010. So I'd already had one go under my belt. Competition is a good experience. I liked competition a lot because- I come from restaurants, and granted, this is my limited experience, but I found that in competitions, people who work in restaurants and do it as a job fare very, very well in competitions. People who work for distributors or wineries or, or some sort of sales position tend to fare relatively poorly when it comes to competition. That being said, the exam is generally less difficult than the competition will be because they have a set of rules that they have to abide by, and then in competition, their rules are gone. So it can be a really good prep but it's not necessarily preparing you for things that are going to be on the exam or an exam style because there, there's a certain, at least an attempt at decorum when it comes to the exam and in competition, they'll screw with you all day long. There's no problem there. They'll ask the, the worst possible things and do the, the, the meanest possible things too. So I really enjoyed it because I come from a restaurant and I'm used to people doing and saying terrible things to me. It's not really a big leap in my world, but no, competitions were fun. I will say the very first year, Because you had to go to a a regional, so that was in Chicago, and managed to get through that. And then you get to go to the National. The the amount of well-intentioned verbal pats on the head I got from the judges uh, at the National was, was kind of shocking. And I know they meant well, but several people were like, oh, you made it all the way here from Ohio. And the subtext was, Did they make you take the blade of straw out of your teeth and your overalls off to go through TSA? Like, you know, farm boy done good. I'm like, Thank you. That, that That's, I, I know you mean well, but it, it's really kind of a backhanded compliment.
0: How did you first learn about the competition? Were you invited in, or was it just something that you stumbled upon and just sort of like, Hey, I'll enter this and see what happens?
1: Uh, I think 2011 was the first year they did it. And through the Guild sum, which is, Depending upon when you asked the quartermaster sommeliers, they were affiliated with it or they were not, depending upon what sexual predator they were allying themselves with at that point in time. It was a resource that people used. And since the competition was sponsored by them, it's like, hey, it's $15. Go ahead and enter it. See what happens. And I was like, I got $15. Let's see how this goes. A month and a half later, two months later at the nationals.
0: Now, when you do the competition, the regional part in Chicago, like you said, is there service theory? and blind tasting just like it would be for all the exams too as well
1: the only difference well i guess it's not an entirely different difference but the question and answer the theory is written so it's more like the advanced exam whereas the master it's it's verbal uh, but it's still the same format it's blind tasting it's service um, and theory
0: so how did they score it was it like you get points for each one or was it just you know there's five judges and they're like he obviously did the best over these four or five other people
1: it's the board of Master so many Ace. Nobody has any goddamn idea how they score anything. That's that's the rub. Part of why I'm not with I no longer participate in that organization is the fact that uh nobody tells you anything. You don't know what you scored, you don't know how you scored, you don't know what you missed. I will say at the national competition, um, both years they did reveal the identity of the wines, which the entire universe of wine didn't come collapsing down when they revealed the identity of those wines. So I don't know why they didn't take that lesson and apply it to the exam as a broader, a broader entity, but uh, that's the one thing they did. They would reveal what the lines were. A good step there. But otherwise, I don't know. The only thing I, I know is that that first year at the regionals, um, they said the scores for, serv- or for service and tasting were almost equal amongst all the participants. And that theory is what won it for me. But other than that, I have no idea.
0: So a year before that, though, you sat for the master for the first time. Of, you did it three times, right?
1: One of them was negated because of the cheating scandal. So it's five with a retry.
0: Oh, was that the year that didn't some people already know what wines or something were before?
1: Well, there were multiple instances of cheating. This is the one where it actually came to a head. Uh, a master revealed the identity of two of the wines to candidates beforehand.
0: Oh, so they wiped out everybody's test.
1: Well, right or wrong. They um uh, they wiped out 25 people's passes and um a number of them never never passed again. And there's been lawsuits and yeah, yeah. So five five times or six, depending on how you want to count things. That's six to me. It felt like six, I'll
0: tell you that. So the first time when you're going to take it, I think it was in San Francisco. Do you remember, were you super nervous, like super anxious? Because most people know like the first time you take it, you're not going to pass. Rule of thumb is something like what, 4% pass on the first time or something like that. It's some really small number. Do you treat it more as like, look, I'm going in this. Probably chances are I'm not going to pass. I'm going to try to pass. I just want to get acclimated to how all this goes and everything. And then the next time I come back, that's when I'm going to pass. Do you have that mindset? Or is it just, no, I'm going to be one of the 4% that passes this time?
1: I mean, I think you have to go into it with the mindset that you're going to be one of the 4% that passes, not to be self aggrandizing or anything, but having passed certified in the first try, passed advanced in the first try. You know, there's a, certainly a momentum there. It's been a while since that. I mean, that's 2010. Um, yeah, I just think... You go into it hoping for the best. They have changed the format of the exam since then. So now you have to pass theory first. If you pass theory, you get invited to the other two sections. When I first took it the first two times, um, you took all three together. So it was a bit of a different experience. It's much more traumatic to do it that way because you're holed up. I took it the first time in, in a suburb of, it's Las Colinas. I think It's a suburb of Houston. So you're holed up at the Four Seasons for a week. You know, you take an hour's worth of exam over three days. Otherwise, you're just sitting in a hotel room in a city you don't want to be in stewing. It's very strange. Now, I think it breaks it up a lot better for people. But no, I just went into it hoping for the best.
0: During that time, like, so you go, you take the exam, one part of the exam, then you're back in your hotel room. Are you, like, constantly waiting for, like, a phone call or, like, a knock on the door? Like, hey, you can come take the next portion now?
1: No, you get times in advance. So, you you know generally a week or two before what time you're going to do everything you know exactly how long to stew and fester and worry
0: they so, say so, yeah you're so like stressed and wired and everything at that point you're like i don't want to go anywhere anyways
1: exactly and everybody's different you know, because they host a hotel you can usually stay there at the discounted rate so some people like to be social they go to hang out with the other people who are examining and they talk about things and other people like me who i'm like if i see you I, I'm it's going to make me upset. Just please stay away from me. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to hear your theories about the exam. You do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. I don't want to see anybody.
0: You did it, like we said, six times. Looking back on all those six times that you took it, what
1: was the toughest part? In, in the more specific sense, tasting, because that's the one thing I didn't pass. Mm-hmm. And it's generally the hangout for most everybody. Although I know a couple people who have hung on service. And I think the biggest hurdle, though, is always the mental one. Anybody who gets to that level can do it. They can do the tasting. They can do the service. They can do the theory. It's getting over that sometimes crippling hurdle of the way the exam is run and set up. That really is the hard part.
0: And then kind of during this time too, I think you were at Sage American Bistro. You were like a bartender. Was that just kind of like, I get to study, no stress, constant regulars coming in.
1: room mile from my house, easy job. Yep, that's exactly what it was. It was great if we you were ever there, but it was an awesome place.
0: Never been there, but yeah, it seemed just kind of like a neighborhood spot. It seemed like you had some regulars and everybody was just kind of chill.
1: Super friendly. Yeah. Now it's a discount sushi place. <laughs> Two words that don't belong together at any point in time.
0: And then from there, I think after a couple of years, you wound up taking over the management of the wine at Giant Eagle, which I'm assuming is the one in Grandview.
1: Yeah, I started that store when it first opened. There was a team lead who ran the department, but we had two wine stewards because I mean, that's a massive department. So yeah, they uh, offered surprisingly good pay for a grocery store and really great benefits. Uh, Worked there for uh, four years, five years. And I think I still did a shift or two a week at the refectory. But it was an interesting experience working in a giant grocery store like that. Eye opening, but good.
0: What was so different between like that kind of giant, not wine conglomerate, but you know, it's a big wine section versus curating, you know, a wine list for like a restaurant? Is it just you have more resources and you can just kind of be like, yeah, we can throw that on the shelf, you know, because we're at, we have the space for it. Or is it still trying to figure out what's moving, what's selling, what fits within?
1: Yeah, it's weirdly kind of just the opposite. You have all the space in the world, but. A lot of limitations on what you offer based upon what's going to move fast enough, uh, because it really is all about volume and and getting enough things to move. And coming from restaurants where there are things that we may go through one case a year, you know, at a big place like that, there are things where you may go through one case in an afternoon. And just the, the sheer volume of things... We did a lot of beer, too. That was probably the more eye-opening. The, the volumes, the rabid fandom for certain beers, people following delivery trucks around on allocation days uh, was really an eye-opener to me. Yeah, just the, the the volume needed to keep a store like that going was probably the thing that surprised me the most.
0: People following the delivery trucks, is that like like Christmas sale? There was for a time where Great Lakes made Christmas sale and it was just three weeks. Now they have like so much of it, they almost kind of produce it year round. But there was a time where it was, oh, it's here. You go get it. Otherwise, you're never going to see it for another year.
1: The following of the trucks around was actually um, Founders KBS when it was in the same sort of zone. But the Christmas ale was baffling to me the first year. But it reached the point to where we would get it delivered on, I think, a Friday. But nobody, you couldn't sell it until Monday. But I would have to go in to our POS system and alter the six-pack and case price so that they would ring up at $25,000 because people would literally sneak into the, the stock room when nobody was looking, grab a six-pack or a case, go to the farthest cashier they could find, preferably somebody who was like 17, had no idea, and try and sneak out and buy it that way. And the only way to raise an alarm bells is if it rang up at $25,000. And it was, the, it was the only way to stop people. It, it's the most ludicrous, childish behavior. It, it stopped them from doing it.
0: That's wild. That's crazy. I didn't know. All, I mean, I knew it was in high demand back in the day before they increased their production stuff.
1: Oh, um, and people would get, get pissy, remarkably angry that they could have one six pack, and they're like, "Do I kind of go out my car and come back and have another one?" I'm like, I'm going to remember your face. We're right here. No, what are you talking about? No, just how about I just take the six pack back and you go get nothing? What was wrong with you? It, it was a baffling grown adults behaving like the most petulant children over beer. <laughs> it, it still blows my mind to this day.
0: It probably still happens too. I mean, it doesn't sound like a whole lot's changed.
1: I'm sure if, if Hetty Topper or something like that ever makes it into Ohio, it'll probably be the same way.
0: 2014, I think you wound up taking on the W set, which is the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. You Got your level three diploma. What made you branch off and take on that? You know, I think at the time you're still going for the master too as well. So was it just something new, different challenge?
1: It was not my idea. (laughs) That was actually Giant Eagle. Um, They were paying for the employees to take it. And they're like, hey, everybody's doing this. Do you want to sit in? I'm like, well, as long as I don't have to do any active studying, I don't care. So (laughs) I'm sorry not to be glib about the whole thing. But yeah, uh, that was was me going in and taking the test with not opening a book and be like, you guys want me to do this? Cool. I mean, at at that point, two master exams under my belt. The W3, SCT3 was pretty, pretty basic. So no, that was not my idea. That was uh, something that Giant Eagle was instituting. And sure, I'll do it.
0: Was the level three, is that similar to the advanced or is it more of like the certified level?
1: Uh, to me, it was a, a, an even a more basic certified level. It wasn't even quite that difficult. Obviously, there's no tasting, there's no service, but um, the, the theory, the question and answer, to me, it was a, a low-grade certified exam.
0: Did that, because of the level, just kind of wash out any desire to do the level four?
1: Yeah, and to me, for the most part, WSET is a lot of times seen as either you want to take an education path or you eventually are going for the MW. Since I didn't have an interest really in either of those, I did what they wanted, and uh, here we are.
0: Then I think after that, you did some wine sales, I think, at Cutting Edge Selections. How'd you wind up there?
1: Uh, I figured I haven't done... There's one thing I haven't done in the wine business so far, so let's check now. Um, i never tried sales and you know always want to try something new. They still have the best book in Ohio, Cutting Edge. They're a great company. Um, they treat their people very well, and they have an incredible book uh, of wines, And they wanted a fourth salesperson in Columbus, and they wanted somebody to focus on restaurants. Um, At that point, you know, the the dispatch top 10 was their big thing, and they wanted somebody to kind of go into those. And I think at that point, they were only in two of the top 10 restaurants, and they um, wanted me to kind of focus on that. I think I got them into, they were nine out of the 10 by the time I, I left. But to me, sales, you're either born to do it or you're not, and I was not it's just, it's Sisyphean, just you know, you roll that boulder up the hill all month long to try and hit that sales goal. And then on the first of the month, it falls back down and you roll it right up the hill again. And this wasn't for me.
0: Then I think like about 2017, you took the master exam again. Was that the last time you took it?
1: Um, I, took a, so I took it in 10 and 11. And then again, in 16, I think 16 was the next time I took it. 16, 17, 18.
0: When you take it for the last time, did you know going in, like, this is the last time I'm doing this?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because it was also, I was pretty tired of the whole scenario at that point, but also it was a reset year for me, which means that I would have lost the two sections that I'd already passed and had to start over, and that sure as hell is not happening.
0: I don't know when they changed it, but basically, like, once you pass one section, I think you have two or three years to do the rest of them, too, as well. So you don't have to do them all in a row. You get two more tries. Was there any other kind of weird feelings when you're like, this is the last time, this is the last shot? Like, Or was it like a normal, you know, I've done this five other times before, either it is or it isn't, whatever?
1: Um, well, there were there, for me, there were two last times. It was the last attempt that I actually paid for, the year of the cheating scandal. So I knew that that, and I think that was actually 2018.
0: Oh, so did they give everybody basically like, you guys can all come back the next year,
1: don't have to pay, like, You got a free shot. They paid for it. Yeah. You did a retake exam. Yeah. You could, you could try it that year or the following year. So anyways, the the year before the last legitimate attempt that I paid for, I knew it was going to be the end regardless. And that was fine. I was done with it. I had had a tumultuous relationship with the court and it's the way of doing things for a long time. So I knew that was going to be my end. And then when the news came out that this had been canceled and all the shit hit the fan, I was like, and they're like, you know, you can take it for free. And I'm like, well, I'll take your money. I don't care. So I guess I went into it with a, I don't really care with just a little bit of pettiness peppered throughout it. I'll take the shot, whatever. And I remember getting my results and they're like, you know, so we can, can we give you some feedback? And I was like, Nope, don't need that. I'm done. They're like, Oh, are you sure? And I'm like, I have never been more sure of anything in my life than I'm done with this right now. So no, it was just a, I left for good reasons. And um, I'm still confident in the reasons that I left for seeing, you know, a cheating scandal then a racism scandal, then a sexual harassment scandal hit the court one, two, three, just after I left, reassured that that was the right decision to make. All those things have been going on for a long time. And and anybody who's involved in the court knew that those were were real things. It just took coming to public light for them to actually finally, I guess, admit to it and start to do something about it.
0: If somebody was to approach you now and and wanted to get into the wine industry, already been in it, you know, on a junior level or whatever, but they're like, hey, should I go test for my advanced or try and get a master? What would you say to them? Would you steer them one way or the other, maybe?
1: Um, you know, it's, it's it bring up an interesting point because now I'm not in Columbus any longer. So I took a job uh, in the Finger Lakes and working for a restaurant group who the owner is a friend, but he is also a master. And, you know, we had to have a conversation. We didn't have to, but we had a conversation before I started. He knows my opinions about the court. And I know his. And we go back and forth a lot on that. Um, but ultimately, within certain boundaries, the examination process and the learning makes people better at what they do. And far be it for me to stand in the way of anybody improving themselves and making our industry better. If somebody is interested in the exams, I will certainly help them. I will give them advice that I find, I think, to be realistic. I try to let them know or impress on them that this can take over your life and really take too much of your life if you're not careful. I try to impress upon people, don't confuse certification with an ability to do a job. So if people want to do it, great, as long as they know exactly what they're getting themselves into. Because I feel like for the generation that I came up in, we didn't get a full fair shake from the court itself in the exam process. I think the generation before us got a much easier exam. I think they got off a lot smoother. The generation, the group I came up in, we were punished by the growing pains of the court and them thinking they're a professional organization who who weren't, let's be frank. You know, and until something disastrous came to light, they never dealt with it. So they were never a proactive group. And that alienated and really did a lot of damage to a lot of people, none of which they've ever acknowledged. But but back to your actual question, uh, I'm all for it. People want to get better at what they do. If they want to improve themselves, great. It makes our industry better. A rising tide lifts all ships. I just, I, I too often see young people who, I'm a certified sommelier. Great. Can you do your fucking job? Can you get people what they want? It's not about you. I'm sure you know who Bobby Stuckey is of Frosco food clients. Um, I've never met him, but, you know, he's taken on some grief over this because of statements he's made in the past about how the young generation, you know, it's all about the rock star image and, you know, the top 30 Psalms under 30. Like he made a good point. He's like, you know, do you ever see a list top 30 surgeons under 30? No. It's a job that takes experience. You don't get good at it until you do it for a while. It's inherently stupid to recognize people who are young at it because more often than not, they're not that good at it yet because it is a service job. You have to learn. You have to learn people. And a certification, albeit nice, doesn't guarantee that. Do you think
0: any organization will either be created or eventually, if there is even one maybe that's smaller, will eventually supplant the cordis. Master Somaliers. Do you think that's even possible?
1: I wish it would happen, but I don't think it will. I think the cult is strong enough now that it just won't die out. You know, I've gone back and forth with a few people on this, um, of the mind frame that at a certain point it has to be burned down and kind of needs to go away and something else needs to fill its place. You've got a lot of people who make a lot of money based upon that master designation and they're not going to let that go very easily. So I think that's where where the loggerhead is probably going to be. Yes, do I think it should end? Uh huh. Will it? Probably not. You know, gatekeepers are going to gatekeep. That's what they do.
0: So after about 20-something years working in Columbus, you decided to head over to Geneva, New York. Now you're working at FLX Table. What changed? You know, earlier in your career, you were always somebody who really wanted to stay, represent Columbus. And I think you did that, too, as well. I mean, your name comes up with anybody that you talk to in the wine industry around not just Columbus, but I think in Ohio, you're just one of the names that comes up. So I think you did achieve that goal. But what kind of change for you that said, well, let's let's go to Geneva. Let's check that out.
1: Uh, a couple of things. You know, one, I'm in my 40s. I never lived anywhere else. As much as I love the refectory and all the people there, it's the same place it was the day I started for all the right reasons and sometimes for the wrong reasons. And it's just a level of stagnation, to be honest with you. You know, I've known the owner of the FLX Hospitality Group for a long time, you know, the restaurant. It's great. Just wanted to do a little something different. My wife and I, we have a house in Columbus and still do. She's actually still there for the time being. Just, I didn't want to die saying that I'd never lived anywhere else and just want to try something different.
0: What's the biggest difference so far between the FLX table and and the refractory?
1: It's it's a huge difference. Um, You know, the quality of the wine is equally good. Um, New York is a bit of a different state in that restaurants can consign from private collectors. So the wine you have access to is, is vastly different, but it's very, very casual. Uh, I wear jeans to work. Um, the soundtrack for the restaurant is mostly 90s hip hop. Um, we only seat 16 people. Quite a big difference because our factory, you know, maxed out can probably seat 200. Uh, I don't do any less running though in the small restaurant than I did in the big one. Um, you know, those are the big, the big differences. The biggest differences have been the towns that I live in. You know, coming from Columbus, a town of 2 million to Geneva, which is 12,000 has been a shift
0: Geneva is what, like an hour away from Rochester?
1: That's about 35 minutes.
0: With kind of that big shift, do you feel re energized at all?
1: In some ways, yeah. Um, I think it's opened my eyes a bit more to who I am and what I need in life, if that makes sense. You know, like, I, I never realized how social of a person I really was until it wasn't an option anymore. I mean, for Christ's sake, the, the Irish bar here closes at 8 p.m.
0: It's not normal for an Irish bar. No,
1: dear God, no, it's not. So it's been a bit of a cultural shift. I'm just taking it a day at a time. Um, I wanted to experience something different, and I'm experiencing something different.
0: When you're going through creating like a wine list, how do you determine how big or how lengthy it should be? Do you use like a ratio to the amount of seats at a restaurant, or is it based on available storage space, or a little bit of both, or
1: you know, in the times that I've done it, the limiting reagents there are usually budget budget and space concerns. Um, I've always been a big fan, although there, it's difficult to maintain, of having a lot of half bottles on a wine list because you, you're basically adding another selection, but you're putting less money in inventory and less space taken up. Um, but yeah, more often than not, it's been a budgetary concern, trying to maximize what you can have and use given the limitations of your budget.
0: When COVID happened, was there a wine that you were surprised that you were able to get due to, you know, collector sell-offs, restaurants kind of depleting their seller stock? Some wineries had backlogs of wines that they made available to different allocations for the first time. Was there anything that you were able to get your hands on that you were super shocked by?
1: I was pleasantly surprised that, um, and granted, I guess I did kind of ask for them, but for the first time in my memory um, at the refectory, we got... Large allocations of Clovers Yard, and then we got a large allocation of uh, Fatan's Cloven nayor, which I've never I've never seen, but in Ohio at that point. Those are the only things that jumped to mind. I think those probably shook loose though, because there were city, or restaurants in bigger cities that weren't taking allocations because four six packs of Clovers Yard is a monstrous allocation, and I, I declined two more of them. So that's one of the only things that really stand out. Did you ever
0: think about opening your own place, like a uh, either a restaurant or like a wine store or something like that?
1: Yep. have for a long time.
0: Still thinking about doing it?
1: Still thinking about it, yeah. It's a weird time to do it.
0: Do you think with the increased interest in wine due to the pandemic and so many people just kind of drinking at home and everything, and then also like there's an increased connectivity, I think through, you know, social media and everything, do you think more people will venture down an alternative career path in wine if they get into that career? Instead of working in a restaurant, I mean, you do have to work at a restaurant to some degree. I've, encounter people that are doing wine consulting businesses and all this other stuff, education too as well. But I think for a long time, a lot of people, it was either you're working in a restaurant, you're working at a winery, or you're working for a distributor. But there seems to be kind of other paths, other careers that people could take. Do you think that's going to continue?
1: I would have to imagine it is. To me, that predates COVID just a little bit. I think it's, at least in my mind, it's tied more to the overall rise of sort of the gig economy as a whole to our people. uh, Yeah, I work at a restaurant, but I also do my consulting thing on the side. Or I work at a winery, but I'm trying to get my own thing going. Restaurant people are, are scrappy, generally not well paid and resourceful. So that's always kind of been something they've done. I think it's just become more mainstream and maybe more of an option for people um, as the idea of like, having a side gig or a side hustle has become a more common thing. Given the flexibility needed with pandemics and shutdowns and all that, I think it won't go away. I mean, for example, you know, in the refectory, when we had to shut down, um, we started doing virtual wine tastings, which I never in a million years considered would be a thing. But it reached a point where we were buying little you know, individual bottles for portioning 2,400 at a time just to have enough to work with because people loved it. you know, They could come in, they could pick up their tasting, they could sit on the patio with their friends, or they could sit at the dinner table with their kids and do a tasting. It was weirdly nice for me because the markup I had to use for a retail wine event to go is always significantly less than it is for an event in-house. So the quality of wines I could offer at a virtual tasting were, were even better than what I could do in-house. So that was kind of shocking. It was incredibly popular. I think people... Towards the end, people were pining to come back in-house for tastings, and I, I absolutely understand that. But I think to a certain extent, a little bit of that virtual will always survive from here on out. There are people for whom it just will always be a good second option or a good first option.
0: When you go out to a, like a restaurant or dinner or somewhere, or even just to have drinks, are you able to just kind of enjoy the experience, or do you kind of compulsively check the wine list to see what do they have,
1: what's there, how did they get that? I always check. I mean, it's just, you can't help it. They weren't getting shit that I didn't have already. So that was never an issue. <laughs> not to be uh, not to be smug, but the ref's buying power, they weren't getting anything that I couldn't get. Yeah, I always look. It's probably, this sounds weird, but one of the big things in the exam during, especially the service portion is they'll give you a line list to correct spelling, punctuation, uh, consistency. That I've not been able to let go of. So typos, I have a hard time not, not looking at those. Yeah, I, I, I don't dwell on it, but I, I can't unsee it at the same time.
0: Do you think people now buy the story or do they buy the wine itself? Like, is it more about the history of like the winery and all that stuff? Or is it more just, oh, this is supposed to be this great wine. It's expensive. That's why I'm going to buy it.
1: Both. This conversation came up last night, actually, increasingly amongst a faction of wine making style people. Um, it seems like apparently a story is all you need to sell certain wines anymore. That I find inherently disturbing. Ultimately, I can walk up to a guest at a table and tell them a whole story about about a wine. But if it tastes like shit, who cares? It makes no difference. If it's got a cool story and it's delicious, then you win. Um, and I think there's too much of this, you know, this wine comes from the eight surviving vines that Pierre's grandpa planted and he plows it with his pet mule Bernice. And then he, you know, trods it by foot and there's no sulfur and his eight-year-old granddaughter hand paints the labels. That's cool. But if the wine tastes like Chardonnay has been filtered through a jockstrap full of caraway seeds, who cares? It's missing the point. You know, ultimately, you've got to get this in front of people and they have to like it. The story is cool. but Without the story, it's meaningless. And far too often, the story in a lot of these wines, it's, this is just an audio recording, correct? I'm letting the listeners know I am using severe air quotes here. Uh, amongst the natural wine people there is way too much story trying to cover up for absolute garbage winemaking
0: i mean natural wine seems to have taken off in like the last couple of years what is the great appeal i don't
1: really get it myself i wish i knew what the appeal was
0: guess <laughs> i don't get it but i was like maybe you do <laughs>
1: Increasingly, guests ask this question, and it's like anything, you've got to temper temper the conversation a little bit. You know, France has enacted some legislation for labeling as natural wine. The rest of the world, pretty much no. It's if I want to call it natural wine, I call it natural wine. My biggest gripe with it is that it's mostly marketing, um, and I don't like the way that it markets. It says that because of these choices that I make, arbitrary choices I make, this is Natural. Natural implies better or that everything else is by definition unnatural and therefore inferior. And I don't like that because it's not true. Um, Are there people who work in minimal interventionist, low sulfur regimes and make great wines? Absolutely. Are there people who do extended skin contact wines and have done it great for centuries? Sure are. But there's a reason why those wines work. And if you taste them, you know why they work. It's this random decision-making that's supposed to mimic what nature would do based on nothing whatsoever that's horseshit. I biodynamic wines, biodynamic winemaking, does it seem to make a better wine across the board? Yes. Do I think it has anything to do with burying cow horns full of shit in the ground for a while? Probably not. I think it's the fact that if you're going to these ends to, to, to make your product, you care. You're paying attention to detail and that's the details what's showing. But... Biodynamicism also allows you to use copper sulfate in the vineyard to control mold. And that that's highly toxic. It bioaccumulates. It accumulates in the vineyards. So it's technically this sort of fancy, you know, non-interventionist or minimal interventionist, whole-earth holistic view that's incredibly toxic. Not to mention its founder was a racist and a teetotaler. Yeah, I, I don't get the appeal of natural wine either. I get the appeal of good winemaking and drinking good wine. But things that are just stinky and being told that they're somehow interesting because... The person made arbitrary decisions. I don't get it. You, know, you don't use sulfur. Great. That's your decision. But you did also make a decision of what grape to put in the ground, where you wanted to put it, what time you harvested it, how many leaves you left, when you pressed it off, when you bought it. You make decisions. You just don't like the decisions that somebody else made.
0: Did you ever consider working for a winery? At any point during your career, I'm always curious, like if you reach the advanced stage, like if somebody gets like a list of names and they're like, let's see if these people want to work, you know, at our winery, did you ever have an opportunity to do that? Or is that something that you're ever interested in?
1: It's cool on the surface, but I think winemaking is, it's like a mortician or an electrician. You just, you got to be trained for those jobs. You just don't dive into that work haphazardly, you know, Um, it's hard work. It's messy work. um, It's, it's difficult I find it interesting, but I don't know if I could ever see myself doing it.
0: Why do you think so many people are hesitant to try or drink champagne? I personally enjoy it, but it's not as mainstream as you would think, even though you know all the champagne houses kind of have this marketing, so it's this celebratory thing. But you would think with the rise of social media and everything, that that would be something that would gravitate the two together almost. Like you have social media, faux lifestyle, with everything that you see people believe is real, even though it's not. And then you have champagne, which is supposed to be this kind of good time celebration beverage, at least how it's been marketed. Why do you think nobody's been able to kind of either put the two together? Is that the main apprehension is just those two things? Or is there other things that just people aren't willing to give it a try?
1: I, I think you kind of hit on it. Champagne is in some respect uh, sort of victim of its own success in a way um, you know it, it was for years to your point marketed as a celebratory thing you know it's what you start off before with before dinner you know you pop a bottle at new year's it's not really seen as wine in a lot of people's minds it's not respected as wine in a lot of people's minds they have two sips of it before they get their appetizers and they never think about it again I think that's the disconnect because it's not seen as wine it's not taken seriously also champagne in many respects is a wine of finesse and uh intricacy delicacy and for a lot of people who go out and spend two hundred dollars on a bottle of wine those are not the things they're looking for they want to be beat over the head they want alcohol and fruit and oak and extract wines that are delicate and nuanced just mm, that's not what they're looking for
0: although you don't technically live here anymore where do you think the food scene the restaurant scene in columbus is headed for you know the next five seven rest of this decade kind of years
1: i really don't know to be honest with you um One thing that's always struck me, and I don't know if this really answers your question, but I've never, it seems that the city's always been waiting for somebody to sort of take the reins and be a qualitative industry leader. I mean, you have Cameron. I don't think that is quite what I'm talking about, though. I'm talking about somebody who is doing consistently great things in a variety of ways, acts as a sort of a rallying point for other people in the industry, is an advocate for them and sort of leads the industry. Does that make sense?
0: yeah, I mean, I think Cameron, you know, paved the way for a lot of restaurants to come behind him. I think still, for a lot of people, it's the forefront restaurant group that we have in the city.
1: volumetrically, I would agree with you. I mean, i'm not I'm not hating on Cameron. He's a, I'm sure he sleeps comfortably on his giant pile of money at night. And, you know, he's made some very generous donations to um, uh, Columbus State. Most every time I've waited on him, him and his family have been wonderful and, and very gracious. But he's never really forging any new territory it's the very best perfectly i hate to use the word average because it sounds a little mean in this context but he's not he's not established he's not blazing a new territory we, we we go to cameron's because my father-in-law is gluten intolerant and they're very accommodating to that and it makes him happy is the food great no is it consistently solidly good yes but it's not blazing a new territory um i think so that's cameron's niche uh, I think what I'm talking about is uh, Columbus has always been needing, um trying to think of an example now, of course, they're all eluding me, but other cities where they tend to have restaurants or restaurant groups that are making a name for the city, they're doing good things, they are they are trying new things, but they're also acting as a support system for the restaurant or the restaurant business as a whole. Um, I think they tried to do that a few years ago with Dine Originals, and then it just kind of petered out into restaurant week and, and one big event in summer. Um, I don't know what the solution is, but I would like, I guess that's what I'd like to see the future of Columbus's restaurants be. I think we have enough brew pubs. Uh, I will say that um, for God's sake, we have enough brew pubs. As long as the, the the trend is downward on the pretentious side of things, I think it's a positive. I would like to see better wine programs across the board. And I'm not saying big wine programs. I'm not saying fancy wine programs. I'm saying wine programs that have thought behind them that have interesting wines, not necessarily quirky or obscure wines, just consistent good drinking. Um, too many restaurants let their distributors do their list for them, or they rely on you know a manager who knows something about wine. I'm inserting those air quotes again, just for the listeners. No restaurant in its right mind that takes itself seriously would open up without a professionally trained chef who knows how to create a menu, control costs, source products, and do all that. So why would you have a wine program without somebody that knows how to run it? It's one of your biggest money makers. You're going to pay fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollars for the liquor permit up front. You have an investment in this. Why would you not actually hire somebody who knows how to make you the money back on that? To me, a good example. Years ago, I got hired at a restaurant just as a server, and one of the recommendations I made to them was that their wines by the glass were like eight twenty-five or eight seventy-five or nine fifty, and I was like, well. If I may a recommendation, just round it up. That's all you got to do. Because realistically, people don't look after the decimal point. They see eight, they see nine, they see 10, they see 11. And I did a calculation for them that based upon their, their own numbers, if they rounded that up on all their wines by the glass, they would make an extra $16,000 a year. It's a small thing. But if you don't hire somebody who actually knows the business and is experienced in making that money and controlling those costs for you, you're either A, leaving money on the table or you're B, letting money run out the door, maybe both.
0: How does Columbus get that talent then? We're in this weird place as a country where, especially even in the restaurant industry, there's a great need for restaurant staff. There's a hiring shortage, getting people back. And, and for various reasons, they don't want to be laid off again if there's another lockdown or anything like that. They've found other opportunities in other industries you know, because the restaurant industry as a whole is usually a low-paying industry. How does Columbus attract that talent that's needed? Where the cost of living is great in Columbus, the housing market's out of control, but it's out of control everywhere. How do you get people to come to Columbus to kind of push the restaurant, the wine scene forward to places it hasn't been?
1: That's a great question because um, I, you know, I think you hit on it. We hear this a lot that you know there's a staffing issue in restaurants that we can't get people. It's not a staffing issue; it's a pay and compensation issue. This industry has treated people like half-assed mercenaries for far too long. It, it's, it's almost a trope now, but in the restaurant business, up until COVID, if you were sick, you came to work. There's no question. Unless you were bleeding out your eyeballs or borderline unconscious, you, you didn't get time off because you had to pay your own bills. And if you didn't work, you didn't eat. I think in a weird way, this is sort of a, a coming Jesus moment for the restaurant business. If you want talent, if you want people to come in, it's real simple. You have to pay. And unfortunately, that's going to mean raising costs for the guests. And they don't like that, but something's got to give eventually. You know, if there was a way for the industry to just buckle down and and maybe give a united front saying, look, we are raising our prices on our menus. This is why. You like coming out. You like eating out. Something has to give. And that has to be the the compensation. Why do you expect people to put their health and well-beings on the line to come out and serve you if you're not going to give them a fair living wage? How is that even remotely reasonable? We don't have healthcare. Um, last time I looked, and this has been a while, it was actually illegal for independent restaurants to join together to collectively buy insurance in Ohio. It was specifically prohibited, so you couldn't, as an independent restaurant group, come together and buy insurance. You know that you, you want to change things, overthrow that.
0: Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that.
1: I don't know if it's still that way, uh, but it was that way. In I, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, if the insurance industry is going to find a way to screw somebody, they're probably going to do it.
0: Is uh, the mustache gone forever?
1: There's The, the lone mustache? I don't know. I, I I stopped shaving the first of the year out of just abject laziness. It's funny. I uh, We did a charity event. Greg, not a charity event, but a fundraiser, Greg Stokes and I did last time before the master exam where we had like a, a psalm v. psalm head to head. And we did it at the refectory. And one of the servers, who's a good friend, he announced both of us in advance before the first tasting. And he announced me as the man who, unironically, wore a Hulk Hogan mustache for ten years, which was great. I got to give credit. I don't know. Maybe one day I might go back to it. But the laziness of the beard is there's something to be said for that.
0: This question comes from Joe Galati, owner of Commune who was previous guest on the podcast, he leaving behind a question for you. Uh, he didn't know you were coming on the podcast. What's the one thing that you do differently if you could go back and change it?
1: I wouldn't sacrifice so much personal and mental well-being for a job. No no job is worth that.
0: What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? It can be anything.
1: Who was your most influential restaurant person that you never got to thank? You know, who had the biggest impact on your career that you've never been able to let know?
0: So a few more questions for you. We ask these to everybody. So there's a little compare and contrast. Who is the biggest influence on your psalm career thus far, looking back at it?
1: Boy, I don't know. Um, I mean, in a lot of respects in, in Columbus, there hasn't been much of a SOM community, you know, for a long time. So a lot of it has been kind of just forging my own path. So I guess good luck and circumstances might have been my biggest <laughs> mentor so far, to be quite honest with you. What's your desert island wine? Like, I, this is the last wine I have. I can just all be able to drink. Uh, Chaves, Hermitage Blanc. What's
0: a restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own? So for this, give us a restaurant in Geneva or kind of nearby that you've kind of found since you've been there and, and that you'd recommend if somebody was coming through and you guys are closed. And then also give us one in uh, Columbus too as well.
1: Geneva very small. I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, there are a couple of places that are nice. There's a little place called Kindred Fair, which does a solid job. Ports Cafe. You know, cuisine's a little 90s-ish, but they do a good job with it. Columbus I still think, now that Kihachi is gone, unfortunately, um, I think the best restaurant consistently in Columbus is Skillet. And I don't, I make no apologies for that. Great people doing honest stuff, not trying to be anything bigger or more than they are and just doing it right and always have. So, to me, that's, and most times see, for like a, a brunch place. Like, they're great folks and they do it really well. And they've been at it for I don't know, 10 years, maybe a little longer.
0: Yeah, it's probably about that. Yeah.
1: Consistently killing it. And they're awesome folks.
0: Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. Place you haven't been, you want to go to.
1: Travel destination, Vietnam would be a good one. Bucket list restaurant. I don't know if I really have one. I'm, my wife and I, our, our taste in restaurants tends to run a little more simple. We're not super fancy diners. You know, Michelin stars and stuff are not a big, they don't hold a lot of intrigue personally. Maybe shaping just because it's a legendary place and just have never been.
0: Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working.
1: So um early in my days at the refectory, we still had they still have a little service bar, which is basically a closet that one person sits in, they make drinks. These are for the servers for their tables. The guests can't go to the service bar. It's just for servers. Well, back in the late 90s, before I hit cell phone, that was the only house phone. So I could like lean on it and I could use the phone. But off to the side, I could see a, a group of booths that are still there to this day. So I'm getting kind of wound down for the night. We're, we're winding up. So I grabbed the phone to call my then girlfriend, now wife. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting there and I was like, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. She's like, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm looking at a woman in her mid-50s pleasure herself with her wine cork right now. She's like, I'm sorry, what? This was a, a person who came to the restaurant regularly, does not anymore, who um, had inched over to the edge of her booth and was given a show to everybody else in the dining room.
0: That might be the best, craziest story that we've had, I think, so far. I don't know if there's going to be another one that tops it.
1: Here's the best part. She used to come in a lot, and she would always leave her underwear under the table for her server. And I'm not making that up. That server, about two years ago, uh, returned to their factory. Somehow the the, the story came up, and I, was, I told him, I was like, do you remember the lady that used to leave her underwear under the table? And he goes, oh, and, and remembered her name. He still knew her name. So I can still see the booth she was sitting at. Of course, my, my wife's girlfriend, she was like, what? I'm like, you asked. This is, this is what I'm looking at right now. This is what's going on right now. My eyes directly to your ears. Yeah, so that's, that's still the time the SWAT team rated Burgundy Room was a close second. Um, I don't think I've come that close to shitting myself uh, in a restaurant. Just after we opened, um, I got a, had a new assistant manager. And she got all trained and it was her first it was a Thursday. It was her first night on her own. And I was like, hey, we live in the neighborhood. We're just gonna be out having a few drinks. If anything goes wrong and anything, just give me a call. I'll be blocks away at the most. So about 11 o'clock she calls. And um, for anybody who wasn't in the burgundy room, it was basically shaped like a, a shotgun house. There's one long side that had the bar and the kitchen, one long side that had the dining room. And she's like, hey, there's a couple on the dining room side having dinner and the guy has a gun in his belt. And at this time, it was illegal in any way, shape, or form to have a gun in a liquor establishment. That's since changed. But I was like, okay, is he making a fuss? Is it a scene? What's going on? She's like, no, they're very quiet. They're having dinner. But the servers have noticed, and they're really uncomfortable. And I was like, okay. I was like, how about this? I'm just down the street. The kitchen closes at 1. If they're still there at 1 or something else happens, call me. So at 1 o'clock, she calls. She's like, he's still here. It's like, nothing's changed? Nope, still fine. But the service is still uncomfortable. Like, okay, got to deal with this. So I walked over and from the front windows, I walked by, I could see the guy sitting there, just a young guy, probably in his late 20s. And I could see a bulge in the back of his pants. Like, okay. So I came in, I went downstairs and I called CPD and I was like, look, here's the situation. Can you please make this as quiet as possible? I don't want a big scene. Can you just keep it quiet. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. So it was a back entrance to the building that was on the side street in Lincoln or Franklin, whichever it was. So I walked out there and I stood in the corner and I waited. Nobody comes, nobody comes, nobody comes. And then all of a sudden I see a cop car followed by eight more and they blocked out high street and they all get out with their guns drawn. I'm like, oh. so they, I think there were eight of them. They came to me and they're like, okay, you're going to lead us in there. So I'm leading a troop of eight heavily armed cops One dude, I shit you not, he taps me in the shoulder and he's like, look, he's got the big, like the riot shotgun. He's like, I need to know exactly who this person is because when I come around the corner, I'm going to have this thing cocked and loaded and pointed at his head so I can't make a mistake. I'm like, what? Are you shitting me? So we sneak in the back. We There were big high-top boots. We came around the corner. I was like, that's the dude. And they took off at a full sprint through the restaurant. And all you hear is boots pounding, like shotgun slides going. Everybody in the restaurant side runs like hell. Everybody in the bar side gets up and comes over to see what's going on. So I'm trying to keep people. And and the dude stands up, puts his hands up, and they all drop their guns and they walk away. And they came back and I was like, what the fuck was that? And they're like, he's an off-duty state trooper. And he didn't want to leave the pistol in his car for fear of getting broken to and taken. <laughs> Which I found out later he still could have gotten in pretty serious trouble for, but they let him go. So I walked over to the table. I was like, man, I am so sorry. And he was like, no, you did the right thing. He, he Apparently they sent one cop around front in case he ran. He's like, I saw the cop in the window. And he's like, I knew what was coming. So he said he pushed his chair back so he could stand up without moving his hands. And he's like, I just waited. And best part, first date. Oh, no. <laughs> The sound of those boots pounding and that shotgun, I have, that is literally the closest I've come to shit myself in public. It was, mm, mm, mm. and that, that was in like the first four months of place, you know, being Yeah, like I said, it shaved a couple of months off my life working there.
0: Food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything that food wise, like if you're in the grocery store, you're like trying to skip the aisle. Cause you know, this thing's down there or any sort of junk food or fast food or, you know. Anything like that? You know is terrible for you, but you just can't help yourself.
1: Yeah, there are two. Um, the Good Humor Strawberry Shortcake Bars. I can sit, I can eat a whole box of those. There's no problem. And uh, when the holidays roll around, that Evan Williams Boozy Eggnog. I don't know if you've had it.
0: Never had it, but I know what you're talking about.
1: I can drink myself into a bloated diabetic coma on that. Kind of stuff. I don't know what it is. It's mm, like we get one bottle a year and it's got to go. You can't, can't do any more of that. I don't feel guilty about it, but I know it's terrible for me and I almost powerless to resist.
0: Pick uh, one of the following, uh, which you think is, is the best or more influential, whatever you want to use. There are 10 wine documentaries, movies. So you have Psalm, Psalm two, Psalm three, sour grapes, decanted blood into wine, bottle shock, a good year uncorked or sideways.
1: I have still never seen sideways. I can, so I have to check that one off the list. Influence. Is it influential?
0: could be influential. could be if it's a favorite. could be one that you'd recommend to somebody if they were trying to, they're sort of like, hey, I'm interested in wine. Like, what's some stuff that I could watch? Be like, oh, well, this does a pretty good,
1: you know. I'm going to go with influential because influence can be good and bad. And I'm going to put some, the original, on top of that list because it's equal parts uh, documentary and propaganda, but it's accurate.
0: Wine recommendations, under $20, under $50, under $100, and over $100. What would you recommend?
1: Um, um, coming, I think it, it comes in right at $19.99. Might not be the easiest thing to find, but I know the refectory was carrying it when I left. Um, there's a little producer, uh, the gentleman's name is Xavier Weisskopf, but the label is Rocher de Violette. And he's in the central Loire Valley in Touraine, making mostly white wine. But he has two little plots of very, very, very old vine cooked which is the local synonym for Malbec. This is not Argentinian, it's not oaky, it's not trashy, uh, but it's got great ripeness, great texture, subtle floral, peppery, terrific length, great example of a wine that has richness and personality without being heavy or obnoxious. That would be my go-to. In the 50-ish range, I mean, if you can get your hands on some Tondonia White Rioja of any caliber, be it Gravonia, uh, or the Tondonia itself. Or, sorry, Lopez de Radia, Sorry. Sorry, um, their white Rio house, either the Gravonia or Tondonia. There isn't a more idiosyncratic and, to me, more interesting white wine made in the world. Over a hundred, boy. I mean, if money's no issue, well, you brought up champagne earlier. If anybody can find an old bottle of the uh, Champagne Charlie that Charles Heidsick used to make, that will be a life changer. The '85, especially. Money's no issue. That, that'll, that'll blow your mind.
0: I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is. If you were, was there an episode, moment, scene that always kind of stands out to you? Or if you weren't, was there anybody who was kind of like a culinary TV personality that you did gravitate towards or really enjoyed and you were either coming up or over the course of working in restaurants and stuff like that?
1: Uh, Yeah, a big Anthony Bourdain fan. Uh, In fact, one episode stands out and it's the Columbus one because my wife was actually the handler for that. So we were actually... We were at the shoot when it when it happened at Kihachi. So uh got to hang out with him uh, and see that go down. So that was pretty special. Um, we couldn't tell anybody about it for months until the show actually aired. So huge fan, big loss. He was exactly what you see on TV. He comes in and he's just making dick jokes. And it was kind of funny because uh, he, he was in town to do the shoot and he was doing a show at the palace that night.
0: Yeah, he was doing that speaking tour thing that not one man show, not really stand up, but yeah.
1: We had a couple of regulars, they're a husband and wife, and the night before the show, they're talking about how she really wanted to go, but the husband wouldn't buy her tickets. Meanwhile, I know I'm gonna see him the next day at this shoot when we're hanging out for the shoot. So when they finished filming everything, you know, he's signing some autographs, and he came to me and I was like, I got a weird request. I was like, I explained that, you know, regulars, wife wanted to go, husband wouldn't buy tickets. I was like, would you mind writing something to the effect of, dear Debbie, sorry, Chet's such an asshole. See you next time I'm in town. And he goes, oh, for sure. So he wrote out, dear Debbie, sorry, chat such an asshole. Catch you next time, Tony. So I got to give that to her the next time they came into the restaurant, which was, you know, was pretty rad.
0: Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug, all that stuff.
1: Social media, I have a personal account, which is just, private. Um, My semi work account is best dressed busser. That's the only social I use. I don't do Facebook. Um, You can find me not Thursday through Sunday. Thursday through Monday. Sorry. Uh, FLX table has a really weird schedule. We're closed Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So Thursday through Monday on Linden street at FLX table in Geneva. Um, You can find me about every third week coming home for a day or two to see my wife. Yeah, that's where I am.
0: And then FLX table dinner only, right? Is it tasty menu format?
1: It's tasting only. It's reservation only. um, $79 for four courses and then optional pairings. It fills up very, very fast. Uh, I know August is full and I think most of September is full already. We only seat 14 people twice a night. So if you plan on coming up, definitely making a reservation on talk in advance is recommended.
0: Hey, I appreciate you doing this. I don't know when we'll ever be over that way. Definitely, we'll try and make it over that way once we're able to. And and definitely check out FLX Table. I've been checking out some of their Instagram, and it it looks like a pretty awesome concept. So, but yeah, really appreciate you doing this. Hopefully, one day you eventually get to open that wine shop somewhere here in Columbus because we could always use more wine places, um, for sure. But yeah, take care. Stay in touch. Open invitation to return on the podcast if you ever have something to plug or whatever. Anybody that comes on, um, we always leave open invitation for them to come back whenever they need so we can help support them as they support us. Yeah, really appreciate it. Stay in touch. Hopefully we'll see you soon. Awesome. Thanks again. Big thanks again to Somalia Chris Dillman for being more generous with his time, coming on his podcast on one of his kind of mornings off. So really cool conversation. So super happy to hear that, you know, he's enjoying his time over in New York, still gets to make it back to Columbus. And the restaurant itself that he's working at just kind of looks awesome too as well. So if you're in Geneva, New York, like he said, make reservations, check out that restaurant if you're interested. And like I said, also follow him on Instagram at best underscore dressed underscore busser. And then also at FLX Table on Instagram. We're on Instagram too as well, so make sure you're following us at Spoon Mob. Make sure to subscribe, follow the podcast on whatever platform you get your podcast from so you don't miss any new episodes as they come out. Pretty much come out every week. Um, Wednesday's Parts Now Known, which is uh, back on. We took a few weeks off just because of some traveling, scheduling and stuff. So took a little break, but we're back recording those and those are coming out on Wednesdays and then the Chefs and Guests episodes come out on Thursdays. So make sure to check all that stuff out. You know, really just fun time doing the stuff so really enjoy it talking to different people within the industry check out past episodes too as well they're all in the feed numbered labeled chefs and guests or parts unknown or whatever you can also find them on the website too as well under the podcast drop down they're all broken out by different uh, categories that they kind of fall into if it's like a special recap episode that we've done or something like that too that's all up there so and the website will link you right to Apple Podcasts which is what most people use but we're on all the different platforms too as well you can find us if for some reason there's a platform that you use that we're not on shoot me an email. Uh, you can either send it through the website portal, contact portal on the website there, or email us directly, spoonmomba at yahoo.com. Appreciate everybody listening. Continue to help spread the word. That's it for this week's episode, and we will see you guys next week.